Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is the first episode of the Bitcoin show. Our guest on today's show is Nick Carter, an absolutely badass Bitcoiner, the host of the On the Brink podcast, a general partner at the venture firm Castle Island Ventures, and just all around Bitcoin legend. He shares his thoughts on Bitcoin today, what's going on with the Federal Reserve and all of the action that we've seen in the banking sector, as well as the regulatory action that's been taken against crypto as a whole. Overall, it's a great show. We're going to be doing these shows every single week, all about Bitcoin and all about what's happening around Bitcoin and the crypto ecosystem. Really, really hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen on the East Coast. Good morning to the West Coasters and wherever you're at. This is the first episode of the Bitcoin show. We'll be doing this show every week on Tuesdays at this time, discussing all things Bitcoin in 2023 and beyond. I'm your host, P.O., here with my co-host, Trevor Owens, an investor in 50-plus Bitcoin and blockchain startups, the CEO of Ninja Alerts, a badass Twitter spaces radio show host in his own right of more than one show, including The Ordinal Show. We got Patrick Stanley, another absolutely badass Bitcoiner. Uh, I mean, look, it would take me all day to, to just give him a proper intro. We'll just call him an absolute badass. And then last but not least, we have today's special guest, someone who I've been listening to at this point for years, talk about uh, Bitcoin on, you know, all of the big podcasts inside and outside the space. He's the host of the On the Brink podcast, a general partner at venture firm Castle Island Ventures and a board chairman or the board chairman at Coinmetrics. Just an absolute Bitcoin podcast legend that is not liked by most Bitcoiners, as he says, Nick Carter. Nick, welcome to the show, man. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. <laughs> feeling fired up by the rage against the machine although the rage against the machine are like they're very pro-establishment these days i think so we have to caveat their their music with that <laughs> you're right but when they made that album they were against the machine still so we're not we're not playing the new yeah. records good old days yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh so so thrilled to have you nick uh trevor patrick how you guys doing uh good all things considered there's i mean the backdrop of these bank runs, I think, are really impossible to sort of ignore. And I'm really glad that we have Nick on the um, on the spaces today because he's got the he's got an amazing pedigree. I'm um, just like growing, basically like growing up with this knowledge and also uh, being like an acting investor. Um, he's really been diagnosing um, a lot of what has been going on and anticipating things like Operation Choke Point on Bitcoin and crypto in the U.S. So I uh, couldn't have asked for a better first guest to have on the Bitcoin show. Uh, so I'm excited. I totally agree. It's a it's a perfect time. Trevor, how you doing? Yeah, likewise. I mean, huge props to Nick for, you know, spreading the word and kind of putting the piece of the puzzle together, um, because I think this is such an important um, topic. And it's just super exciting to have Nick here to talk to him about it. I think it's going to be really helpful to to go deeper into what's going on in the market and, and the future of this industry. Absolutely. And, and ladies and gentlemen in the audience, if you have any questions for Nick, anything that you think is worthy of discussion, just reply. I'll pin the tweet right now. Uh, it's just the tweet to the show. Just reply to that. We'll see it right away and we'll be able to ask Nick. We're going to talk to Nick uh, about everything going on right now, uh, you know, just in the in the macroeconomic environment, and then also obviously get his takes on Bitcoin in 2023, some of these new developments that have come up, very exciting stuff happening in the Bitcoin world recently. Well, depending on how you look at it, depending on who you are. Um, and then we will let more speakers on stage later in the show to kind of open up the discussion. Um, you know, Nick, you, you wrote a, a an essay a couple months ago, Operation Choke Point, and uh, I think it's pretty gnarly everything that's kind of ensued since then. I guess now, uh, you know, about a month after you wrote that, how are you feeling? Uh, you know, how is it aged, and what do you make of the events of the past week? Yeah, I mean, um, when I wrote that, I, you know, people called me conspiracist when I wrote that. <laughs> they thought I was um, exaggerating the. Um, the actions that are being taken to marginalize the crypto industry. And what happened 
went so much further beyond what I thought was possible or likely at the time. Um, what's happened subsequently is a decapitation of the banks that service Bitcoin firms, that service the crypto firms. You know, Bitcoiners like to think that they're fully sovereign, but you still need fiat connectivity for a lot of things, whether it's payroll or paying your employees or suppliers or, you know, getting paid or obviously getting to the fiat system in and out. And the three most crypto adjacent, crypto friendly banks, in particular Signature and, and Silvergate, are defunct. They're no more. And, and Nick, I don't know if you did you get cut off there uh, or were you done speaking? Sorry, you got cut off for a second. Um, you said that uh, the two. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I got a phone call and it. I don't know what happened. But um, yeah, they you know, those two firms were kind of systemically important to the crypto spots marketplaces. Um, liquidity has significantly deteriorated because of the loss of in particular the Silvergate Exchange Network, SEN. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this went so much further beyond what I expected. Obviously, I feel somewhat validated uh, by virtue of the fact that it's now very explicit that there's a anti-Bitcoin, anti-crypto animus among the bank regulators. And we're going to find out a lot more in the coming days about what happened exactly to Silvergate and especially Signature, which I believe was um, assassinated, <laughs> basically, for lack of a better word. I think it was euthanized by DFS as a direct move against crypto. I think we're going to find that out. Um, so there's lots more to discover. There will be inquiries. I think Congress will be on it. We need to find out what the hell happened. Um, but yeah, um, it's not choke point anymore. It's decapitation, unfortunately. And it's, it's, it's pretty systemic. And despite all that, obviously, Bitcoin's rallying, um, which I think is reflects a genuine macro change, a development, which is really material. Um, so it's kind of like good and bad. But um, at least on the banking side, it's pretty tough for the, for the whole industry, I'd say. Yeah, and I absolutely want to talk about the rally that we've seen, you know, since all this went down. You said that this is systemic. How much does, you know, the current administration have an impact on that? Is it administration specific? Is it is it bigger than that? Um, well, taking down the crypto space is not the top priority of the Biden admin. It's probably like their 20th priority. Um, but there's definitely elements in the admin, particularly at, at um in the, among bank regulators, with the FDIC and the OCC being the primary antagonists, um, there is definitely a concerted effort to marginalize the crypto space, which has been successful in many ways. Like crypto firms are now scrambling. Obviously, their major banking partners have been shut down. Um, there's informal prohibitions now on banking crypto firms at a lot of the banks that are remaining. Um, formal or informal. Uh, in some cases, it's uh, business realities. Like it's very expensive to bank a, a you know Bitcoin company or crypto company because um, it, it incurs huge additional compliance costs for the banks. So for the banks to think it's worth it, they need to um, have big accounts. They need the accounts to be really profitable and generating a lot of revenue for the bank. If that's not the case, then it's not worth it for the bank. So right now everyone's scrambling. And um, unfortunately, there's there are a few, there's a handful of banks that are filling the void, but they're not very crypto native. They're sort of more opportunistic. They realize there's a lot of tech and crypto firms that are like looking for new relationships. So yeah, I mean, I would say uh, systemic at the administration level for sure, uh, especially among like two or three financial regulators. Um, and uh, yeah, we're kind of up against it now. Yeah. I mean, great, great recap. Uh, Patrick, do you have your hand raised? A question for Nick? Yeah. Question for Nick. Um, Nick, I've noticed there has been this sort of narrative push that crypto is, is the destabilizing force for this bank. Um, when it appears that the Fed uh, interest rates from uh, basically 0.1% to basically 5% uh, in in, a, in the fastest period of time it's ever been done, basically, over the fast three quarters it's ever been done, uh, has 
more likely been the destabilizing force, uh, in addition to potentially um, reduced regulations on shock, uh, on like, um, what is it called, like uh, shock testing these these like uh, regional banks. Um, can you comment on basically like the narrative and, and what to, uh, what we're seeing coming basically out of corporate media um, and, and what, what their talking points have been and what you see the reality? Being? Yeah, of course. Yeah. The ultimate cause is very simply the fiscal impulse that we saw in 2020 and 2021. The CARES Act, trillions of dollars that were printed, trillions of dollars causing an inflationary burst which the Fed then reacted to. The Fed is just like a little algorithm which, you know, reacts to inflation, hikes rates. That's their mandate. Like, I'm, you know, a lot of people don't like the Fed. I can't really hold it against them. They're doing what they're kind of meant to do. Of course, the whipsawing from zero to plus 500 basis points, that, of course, destroys the banking sector. Like, of course it does, right? Those bonds mathematically decline in value when you hike interest rates 500 basis points in a matter of months. Of course, that's the case. So everyone knew, everyone at the Fed knew that, that was likely to break something. Now the Fed understands it's a responsibility to shore up the system that they broke. But really the ultimate cause, the real, real ultimate cause is the massive fiscal impulse, which manifested in inflation, which the Fed then had to tackle. Everything is downstream from that. You can, you know, argue about like the composition of SVB's portfolio in particular, but they were buying like high quality liquid assets. They were, you know, they were buying what they were meant to buy. Of course, like, are there arguments you made about hedging? Like maybe, but like, frankly, there's, you know, esoteric reasons why hedging actually wouldn't have been that easy for them. Like they were, SVB was faced with like a hundred billion in inbound deposits due to the explosion in liquidity, the uh, startup landscape, um, the amount of venture capital that became available in 2021, which manifested in deposits. They had to put those deposits somewhere. They bought high quality like agency securities, basically mortgage backed securities. And, um, you know, those things sold off as rates rose and then as the Fed sucked the liquidity out of the system, engaged in quantitative tightening, and just destroyed the money supply, basically, startup activity slowed, their startups drew down on their deposits. You know, it's like a normal thing that startups do when financing activity slows. And that was really, I would say, the ultimate cause of the SVB collapse in particular. Now, Silvergate and Signature the question is like, to what extent is the crypto industry like a proximate cause of their collapses? Arguably, I and I'm, you know, I'm pretty steadfast about this. I don't think that crypto, like systemic crypto risks or whatever, killed those banks. I don't think it did, because Silvergate had already drawn down seventy percent in their in their deposit base throughout 2022. Like. The big sell-off in crypto did not happen in the last few months. It happened like, you know, last quarter of 2021 and over 2022. Those banks drew down their crypto deposits, Silvergate, you know, particularly so, 70% drawdown. They weathered that storm. Silvergate weathered that storm. They were solvent. What happened that killed them, they were kicked off the federal home loan bank. That was their line of credit that they were utilizing, bargain some of their assets to pay out deposits. Why were they kicked out of that? Was it because their capital ratios deteriorated? I don't think so. I don't think their capital ratio deteriorated in Q1 because crypto rallied and bonds rallied in Q1. So I don't see a fundamental impairment to their economics in Q1. But what did happen, there was a massive press and political campaign to get the FHLB to unbank Silvergate. That was a real thing. What's the FHLB for folks listening? It's this uh, pretty esoteric like uh, pool of capital that uh, certain banks can borrow against. Basically, pledge some collateral and you can uh, borrow um, liquid uh, cash against it. And that's how Silvergate, that was their lifeline. And that was cut abruptly. And then they failed. 
Um, is it, you know, so the question to interrogate is why was that cut? I believe that it was political pressures. We haven't seen good answers there, but there certainly was a very concerted political campaign to kick them off of that because they were perceived to be like abusing it because they weren't strictly using it for housing purposes. So for Silvergate, I would say that was the sort of like immediate trigger. And then of course, Silvergate going down, I think was like the, the local cause for SVB. Now Signature on the other hand, Signature I think was solvent when they were shut down on Sunday night. Signature I think was solvent. And we're going to find out more. Of course, Barney Frank came out with a pretty stern indictment of uh, basically NYDFS um, over the last couple of days saying that DFS shut them down due to their crypto affiliation, um, which I, I think is, you know, we'll find out in the coming days, but I think that was true. Like, I think that was the reason why, because Signature is very questionable as to why they should have been shut down, curtailed when they're in a better liquidity position. Uh, than most of their peers. So I do think it was an opportunistic political move to kneecap the last remaining pro-crypto bank at that point on Sunday night. Even the FDIC was surprised when it landed in their lap. Um, So there's like a zillion different things you could name as triggers and catalysts. Um, But uh, yeah, I I don't think, you know, the, the eddies and flows of the crypto industry was, was really that responsible. Maybe there will be some half-hearted efforts to pin it on crypto, but the big collapse in crypto happened per, prior. Like the credit failures, the credit collapse in crypto was sort of March through July of 2022. Those banks weathered the storm through that. They were limping along, harmed, but not dead. And um, I think it was pretty opportunistic eventually to, to kill off, in particular, Silvercake and Signature. So I, I do think that's a major scandal, and, and I hope to get answers about that soon. And Barney Frank, uh, he was on the board of Silvergate, and he was the Frank and Dodd Frank, and was the chair of the House Services, uh, the House Financial Services Committee. Is that correct? Correct. And so, like, this man understands how banks work at a very deep level, right? And so, yes, he was in some sense conflicted because he's on the board, but at this point, his equity has been zeroed out. So, I I mean, if you think that he's just making allegations out of some self-interested reason, like maybe, but at that point, it would just be purely reputational. It's no secret though. It's no secret that the DFS and Signature had bad blood. It's no secret. That has been known for years. So I think there was political opportunism at play there. And I do think Barney Frank is inclined to have a pretty good perspective on this. I mean, who has a better perspective than someone who was on the board of the affected bank and like deeply knew their financials? Uh, So that one, you know, there was a big brouhaha about it yesterday. I expect that uh, members of Congress will be asking questions of DFS to find out when the hell went down there and why Signature is off the market today. Well, I mean, fa- fascinating analysis and, you know, can't wait to see what information comes out. Trevor has his hand raised. Trevor, do you have a question for Nick? And then I have a follow-up after that. Yeah, I want to ask Nick, um, like, from your perspective, like, where are we at now and where is this going? And then what is the recourse, uh, like, what is our recourse? You know, for for some perspective from a, a data point, I have some companies who their business is uh, Bitcoin on-ramps, off-ramps, and I've had one company who has had to change banks and, you know, they're getting offers, but they're also getting, you know, I would say uh, difficult offers like high, high interest or sorry, like, um, you know, 50 bips on all funds, massive minimum balances, this kind of a thing. Yeah. So there are obviously banks that will service uh, like Bitcoin startups, crypto startups, be it on and off ramps. It comes at a significant cost. They're not treated as regular tech startups. So it does hobble the industry and smaller, newer startups. Now getting banking is a genuine question for them. Um, A lot of banks just have an informal prohibition on any crypto related activity at all. Uh, So going forward, there's gonna be this transition period where everyone tries to move to the newer banks. I expect that the regional banks will now suffer a slow bleed because the 
collapse of the second and third largest bank collapses in U.S. history, that doesn't leave the system unchanged. Those are monumental collapses. Signature was $100 billion. Silvergate or SVB was over $200 billion. Now everybody's looking at their bank balances, looking at their FDIC limits. And basically, people are either going to crowd into the largest banks if they can, the systemically important ones, or they're just going to hold treasuries directly. And there's a bunch of ways to do that. There's a bunch of startups that will give you access to direct treasuries. So they'll bank with the government effectively. That is very, very bad for regional banks. Um, and a, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, just you know, split up your accounts and um, make sure that you're under the FDIC thresholds. That's not like practicable for most companies, right? Um, and also banks depend on un unsecured deposits. That's the lifeblood of most banks. Right. So it's not like a reasonable thing to say to have, you know, just to say, OK, well, just, you know, stay under the FDIC threshold. You'll be fine. These banks will die. These banks will die if um, if that becomes the norm or if people move away from unsecured deposits entirely and, uh, you know, just hold treasuries. Right. Uh, so um, as we transition away from the like former status quo, um, there's going to be a slow bleed. It's not going to be fast anymore because the Fed did step in and basically guaranteed deposits, a lot of these smaller regionals. Um, but there's no real reason to keep your, your deposits there anymore. And so I think this is going to cause significant consolidation in the bank sector. Um, it's going to benefit the, the largest banks um, and really, really hurt the vibrancy of the bank sector. And of course, it hurts the product suite, right? Because that's how these little banks differentiate themselves. They do, uh, you know, more fit for purpose products. Like that was the whole point of SVB. They were the bank that were really good for startups, for venture firms. So this all hurts, like just like the quantity of innovation in the bank sector. It fungibilizes the banks and um, it's going to be really damaging. Uh, so in the mean, in the sort of intermediate term, that's what's going to happen. It's going to be really bad the vibrancy of the U.S. bank sector. And of course, this can be very inflationary because the Fed is now effectively guaranteeing um, deposits. They're, they're guaranteeing uninsured deposits everywhere because that's the only way to stop the bank run. And uh, that's not free. I know that uh, people in D.C. are saying, oh, it's all going to come out of FDIC. Absolutely not possible. FDIC is really small and cannot remotely insure uh, all the unsecured deposits in the US banking system. Um, so that's the other thing that I wanted to mention is the price action you're seeing in Bitcoin today. That's not like, oh, you know, the banks are failing. It's good for Bitcoin. It's it's that the Fed has basically now adopted a new, much more accommodating stance. And they're finding new creative ways to inject liquidity into the system, regardless of whether it's hikes or rate cut, like cuts, or whatever, you know, dovish or hawkish in terms of like the actual rates, the Fed is finding new ways to inject liquidity into the system. They do this every time they invent new facilities. Um, and I think the market has correctly sussed out that um, this is a highly inflationary posture. Well, we are at already 6% CPI as of this morning. So they're basically easing now. They're easing into an already inflationary environment so that combined with the bank runs, like basically undermines confidence in the dollar in a very literal and real way in the banking system as well. So it's a, a perfect storm for Bitcoin itself, right? It's a perfect storm for Bitcoin, but at the same time, crypto companies are now like have this sort of bank crisis. So there's like pluses and minuses, but the net net is that it's positive for Bitcoin as a hard money or and gold as well for that matter. So many follow-up questions. I saw Patrick raise his hand. Uh, Patrick, go ahead, then we'll throw it to Trevor. Yeah, thanks, Pierre. Um, so, Nick, what I'm hearing is, like, basically the rules of... It's almost like the rules of the game have changed and the Fed is basically forced to pivot. And to sort of anthropomorphize this a bit, it's like Bitcoin and USD are meeting for the first time and are about to do a dance. So, like, it, in on, in one corner, it's the unlimited backstop, or the infinite backstop, and on the other, in the other corner, it's the immovable object, Bitcoin. Yeah. So, 
I mean, ultimately, the only the casualty here, when the Fed is guaranteeing all the deposits in the system and and protecting it at all costs, the casualty is the U.S. dollar, and it's already in in an inflationary mode, and so this is adding inflation to inflation. So it's kind of a very different circumstance than any of us have seen in our lifetimes. My analogy or historical callback would be to the early 1970s, not to the 80s when the Fed quelled inflation successfully, but to the early 1970s when there was an inflationary burst, the Fed raised rates, quelled inflation for a time, but then inflation roared back with a vengeance. Um, And so what I actually expect to happen here is, and what I think is happening in terms of the attacks on crypto is this is the beginning of the U.S. implementing a capital controls regime where they actually try and keep all deposits. Uh, they try and effectively commandeer the savings of ordinary Americans and force them to hold government debt. So, like, you know, think of all the people buying treasuries right now, right, uh, for safety. So that they want people to they want those deposits to be trapped in the system so that there's a buyer for, for government bonds. Um, meanwhile, inflation eats away the real value of the government debt and uh, savers are left holding the bag. Savers are holding something that's yielding negative, right now negative 1%, 2% in real terms. But, uh, you know, as inflation bursts again, uh, it'll be much higher than that. So, you're, so, you know, people think government bonds are safe and they're good, but really they are, uh, it's a tool for confiscation of the wealth of savers. So Bitcoin is an asset that has a zero yield, real yield, um, you know, like similar to gold. And against that backdrop, Bitcoin looks very attractive now because it's something that can't be, uh, you know, eaten away by inflation. So, you know, I'm very sympathetic to like the Zoltan Pozar school of thought, the Luke Groman school of thought. I think it took a long time for like Luke's ideas to be validated, but uh, you know, he's a couple. He was a couple quarters too early, but I see this as uh, as his vindication. Uh, so I think we are we're, we're we're moving to a new regime, which is pretty terrifying if you're a saber trying to save money. Uh, but of course, Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin is one of those assets which people look to in a time like this. And, and I'm going to throw to tr- Trevor in a second, but Nick, one thing that you said, you know, the kind of more inflation in an already inflationary environment. When I think of that, all I can think of is, you know, does this mean that there's a very real possibility that like long-term, say over the next five to 10 years, uh, Americans could basically face a situation where goods and services just flat out cost more than they ever did before. And it kind of stays that way, uh, you know, to a degree that Americans just aren't used to, to a degree that's more similar to other countries um, that maybe aren't like superpowers, like, like the United States is and in the process does this kill the middle class well i would say the analogy would be like an argentina you know which is not not great right it's not something i want to be the case but you know if you look at who is now willing to buy treasuries foreigners are divesting treasuries um social security selling treasuries Nobody trusts treasuries uh, overseas, especially because they've been highly politicized. The U.S. is using them as a weapon. So the U.S. government has fewer tools available, right? It's harder to issue treasuries. Uh, So they're kind of going to be foisted upon the U.S. saver. Uh, I think politically it'll be, you know, what they'll do is they'll make banks hold a lot more treasuries. Uh, Crowds out uh, the private credit market, which is pretty bad. And... um, you know, unfortunately, with the with the banking system being in distress, the tools that the Fed has to do that has to address that. Those are generally inflationary tools, and of course, we're in a time of high and increasing deficits. I mean, really significant material ones. We can't monetize those anymore, um, so the Fed is going to have to pick up the slack and fill the hole there, and um, that's also inflationary. So, I think we're entering a new structurally high inflationary regime. A lot of people were optimistic about a soft landing. That's certainly not going to happen now. And even worse, if we enter a recession, that lowers tax receipts, which means that it has to be backstopped by more more issuance, more printing. Uh, so it's kind of a perfect storm. 
um, unless there's some sort of productivity miracle or something, uh, it's going to be really challenging for a twin deficit nation now going forward. And so I think that all explains why the U.S. is, is instituting these kind of soft capital controls and trying to discourage these outflows to hard assets uh, like like Bitcoin. I mean, it's wild. And I think AI is just going to fix everything, isn't it, Nick? I mean, like you <laughs> joke, but actually I do think AI is like a massive productivity unlock and, and could add a ton to GDP. So that might stave off the worst here. Like it's, I compare AI to like the development of like nuclear power or something, you know, like huge possible productivity unlock. Um, so that's one of the few things that makes me optimistic is I, I th- I'm super optimistic about AI and I think it, it could actually add a whole bunch of points to GDP and help get us out of this quagmire a little bit. Um, but yeah, like the, the structural macro trends are, are pretty bleak and I augur very positively for basically hard assets. Yeah, I'm definitely very optimistic when it comes to AI too. Uh, Trevor, you have your hand raised? Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just curious, Nick, how long do you expect this to play out and how could the you know 2024 election uh, play into this? Well, I think we're headed for a recession um, which is historically not great for, for incumbents. Um, I think people are pretty dissatisfied overall with the administration, uh, not just on the issues of crypto, but broadly. Um, so I think there'll be, um, there'll be a turnover in, in, in administrations at that point. Um, I know a lot of people are placing their hopes for like a more, for more friendly administration. I think that's certainly possible. Um, but like from a startup perspective, you can't just assume that, uh, you know, the, that the presidency will, will change hands or anything like that for the next two years, it's going to be stasis basically. I mean, Congress is, is deadlocked, so there's not going to be a lot coming down the pipe there. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, like first term president facing recession at the end of their term, uh, that historically correlates with, uh, with an electoral loss. But yeah, I was just going to ask a follow-up. Do you, do you see a scenario where then if there's a change in the administration, they kind of continue the policies like maybe we saw with like the Patriot Act? Um, or do you see them potentially reversing it? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, obviously under Trump, like it's not like the SEC was particularly favorable to crypto. Um, although, you know, like people like to say it's not partisan, but there's a clear political divide um, in terms of the the relative friendliness to Bitcoin and crypto, um, national security concerns are you know valid. Like the the U.S. government wields sanctions as an aggressive tool, but I think things in twenty twenty three are a little different. I would say Republicans are overall much friendlier to crypto, and there's a case we made that. Bitcoin and the crypto space are American industries. America is the nexus of those technologies and stands to benefit the most from it, especially if it internationalizes the dollar. Um, so I think you can make a pretty persuasive case to even the like sort of NATSEC hawk types that uh, Bitcoin and the crypto industry support U.S. interests. It's just that you do face the loss of your sanctions making ability, which they're losing anyway. I mean the sanctions have been overused to such a degree that uh, they're a pretty blunt tool these days. So as long as you can accept that, um, um, I think like if a possible future Republican administration would be far, far more accommodating to the crypto space. And, and it's Nick, it sounds like we're going to be calling operation choke point operation guillotine or something like that at this point, based on, you know, the, how you're kind of talking about what we've seen. The thing, the name that comes to mind for me, you know, listening to you is, is Coinbase. Do you think that there's going to be action, you know, taken by any government body against Coinbase or any regulator against Coinbase? Like where does Coinbase fit in all this? Yeah. I mean, regulators are, harassing them already there's kind of like always a low level amount of harassment i think the sec is probably likely to take another look at their the assets that they list and you know potentially the securities analysis there but you know ultimately i think it actually benefits the government to have just a small number of exchanges being those nexuses that they can oversee and regulate pretty closely um so i don't think coinbase is in peril at all um, I think 
even the Biden admin understands that they can't destroy the onshore crypto exchange market. I think what they'll seek to do is concentrate that in a small number of players by raising regulatory barriers to entry. And then the few that remain, they'll be able to control them more directly and impose more oversight and and more compliance, more KYC, things like that. That seems to be the general strategy. Makes sense. Uh, Trevor? Yeah. So, you know, I saw that Paxos took a hit in, um, with signature, financial ties to signature. Like, how do you think about the future of on-ramps then? And, you know, is peer-to-peer on-ramps an option in this? Is there new ground to explore there? Well, the P2P on-ramping space is pretty challenged. I mean, Binance P2P is the globally biggest. And then local Bitcoins announced that they're shutting down. Paxful, I don't know where they are. I mean, I think they're still in business. Um, but the P2P space is, uh, is pretty challenged to be honest with you. Um, I mean, you can't stop someone doing like a bilateral fiat to crypto transaction. You know, that's probably globally the dominant way that actually people buy Bitcoin or, or other crypto assets. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do expect that Coinbase will be able to retain their their banking partners, the largest exchanges, will be able to retain them, for sure. Um, it's the smaller ones that I worry about uh, at that point. Um, you know, it, it gets very hard to persuade a bank to to provide you that level of service, especially because there's a difference between sort of like corporate accounts at a bank where you're just storing cash with them, and accounts that are like you're remitting funds to customers fiat. Uh, you know. They're, the bank is supporting the relationship between the exchange and their clients. That's the one where banks are much more wary of it, uh, especially after the after Silvergate was really heavily affected by the FTX collapse. Banks don't want to incur the liability of supporting exchanges, which they are perceived to be really risky. I mean, it's fascinating. And, you know, when you brought up earlier the idea that it's just unrealistic for, you know, startups, for example, uh, to only have up to a quarter million dollars in any given account and to have X number of accounts, we've already seen it a couple of times in the past week, you know, since this all went down with crypto uh, startups that had, you know, big seed rounds, you know, they just have so much capital. It's, it's unrealistic for them to, you know, be able to break that all up. I guess, Nick, you know, you talked about you're looking for more info to come out this week. Like, do you, are there any predictions that you could make for what information could come out? Um, you know, what you think of maybe what we see the Fed do? Like, some people are calling for a 25 basis point hike and then p- perhaps a reversal. It sounds like you're not as focused on the rate hikes because they're creating liquidity in different ways. I don't know. What's your perspective on what comes next? Yeah, the Fed likes to, um, they like to push on, they like to pull various levers, sometimes levers that cancel each other out at the same time so yeah certainly the rate hikes like they matter um it's interesting to see that various sell-side firms have different views of the next possible hike whether it's keep it as is hike or cut uh there's there's views supporting all those three scenarios which is interesting but generally speaking i think the fed is overall reliquifying because they have seen that the monetary tightening has had such a rough impact on the banks, especially as like, you know, the asset portfolios of the banks weren't really the problem. It was the rapid siphoning of money out of the system. That was the problem. So the fed understands that. And uh, they, the last thing they want is a bank run. So they're stepping in really aggressively here as, as far as I can tell. Um, forgot the first part of the question. <laughs> All good. I, Trevor just raised his hand. It was just more about what's coming next. Um, maybe too many words on my side, but uh, Trevor, do you have a follow-up for Nick? Yes. So I think like um, another sort of uh, um, divergence in like two paths is with stable coins and then BTC. And so currently the industry, you know, most, uh, most everything is denominated in dollars and then that trickles back to stable coins. You know, how do you think we could move forward towards a future where everything is denominated in BTC? Well, cultivating a market where Bitcoin is the medium of exchange is really important. 
Um, and there hasn't been a lot of that. Um, you know, like stable coins are the dominant form of collateral in crypto smart contracts today. Um, main reason being that there isn't a robust DeFi ecosystem on Bitcoin at present. And, um, you know, people do wrap Bitcoin and they, they, you know, insert it onto other blockchains. So that would be one thing is developing more credible wrappers. I think people don't trust the ones that exist or they're pretty trust maximized, which isn't great. Uh, so, so more trust minimized wrappers and then also just developing a Bitcoin native transactional ecosystem. Um, so of course, ordinals, they're really important. Like if you think about what NFTs did for ETH, NFTs are like priced in ETH and those transactions settle in ETH, you know? So if ordinals take off, that has the potential to rewire the marketplace a little bit and, um, you know, reinstill Bitcoin as a popular medium of exchange. And Nick, what's that? What's that profile picture you have? Oh yeah, that's my wizard. That's my wizard. I I don't know why they put the mug on on the wizard. I don't <laughs> like the mug, so I'm kind of against that. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, there's some interesting original ordinals projects coming out. I'm pretty bullish on it. We've made some investments in the ordinal space from our fund. Um, I think it'll be one of the dominant. NFT like venues going forward, probably number two, I think. I think it could supplant uh, like Solana. Um, I don't think it'll unseat ETH as the dominant place to trade NFTs just because Bitcoin block space is more limited. And so it means that Ordinal's projects will be more low in number and considered more like uh, premium. So I think it'll be really different. Um, but I think probably one of the dominant like NFT domains going forward. So pretty, pretty excited about all that. And on the real quick, Patrick, on the NFT side, I think a lot of the speculation is that the fine art side of the space could go to ordinals because it's on Bitcoin, because it would be lower supply. That's where fine art will live. So whether or not it, you know, dethrones ETH, I think at the end of the day, it's just flat out different. Uh, Patrick, what were you going to add? Sorry, I didn't want to cut you off. Um, yeah, it, it's like, a, you know, Bitcoin is like the Internet's money. It's it's um, I don't think it, it shouldn't be surprising that uh, the Bitcoin economy happens on the Internet digitally through things like ordinals. Like, I think this is like this makes total sense. Uh, and it's it feels to me like, yeah, people are using Bitcoin for various uh, various things. But it feels like the Bitcoin economy has actually sort of begun in earnest through this like seedling uh, ordinals um uh you know uh start i guess like we, we started ordinals and now it seems like there's an actual like on-chain bitcoin economy that where people can like buy and trade assets denominated in, in bitcoin um and that looks like a toy now but could end up you know reaching out into the real world or further out into the inner into the corners of the internet um so yeah, I guess like it almost feels to me like, you know, when um, the pandemic started and everyone started working remote and it's like, OK, now we're really living on the Internet as like it was kind of like the Internet had been around for decades, but it actually really officially be like <laughs> almost like began began in like 2020 because everyone was remote. Um, I feel like that is like there's a similar kind of like rhyme I I'm like seeing here with ordinals in the Bitcoin economy. It's almost like. Bitcoin economy is actually beginning in earnest through ordinals. I think that's a fair take, Patrick. Uh, you know, Trevor, you have your hand raised a question for Nick. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, Nick, you you famously uh, wrote a great essay, a eulogy to uh, Bitcoin maximalism. Congrats on killing uh, Bitcoin maximalism. Um, you know, in that essay, you also said that there weren't enough Bitcoin startups to invest a hundred million a year into. Do you think that Ordinals has shifted the Overton window for building on Bitcoin and that that formula may change in the next 18 months? Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually think it's um, one of the most interesting times ever to be a, a venture capital firm that um, has a Bitcoin mandate. And uh, I feel for the firms that are 
Bitcoin focused VC firms that exclude interesting stuff from their mandate. That seems crazy. <laughs> you know, I would hate to be one of them, but um, yeah, it's not just ordinals. It's um, it's it's re-energized the Bitcoin builder space. The idea, the understanding now that you can use the like um, tab script blob space as an anchor uh, to Bitcoin at, for arbitrary sized amounts of data um, that has really energized the builder space, not just for NFTs, you know, not just for images, but for interesting approaches to L2s. I'm seeing a lot of that. And the other thing is ordinals has made block space scarce once again, right? So uh, it's driving up fees and that creates urgency, right? It creates the economic need to move some transactions to L2s, whether that's Lightning or whether it's novel L2s. And, you know, I think a mistake the Bitcoin community makes is not learning from other blockchains because, you know, there's some sort of like moral opprobrium in doing so, but there's plenty to learn from other blockchains, especially like looking at the L2s on ETH, the successive rollups, it's all very indicative that there's not just one scaling model. Like if you look at the payment space, it's not like there's just one way of doing payments, right? There's dozens and dozens of different ways to like remit payments. And I think a more pluralist approach on Bitcoin is totally warranted. Like Lightning, it's great. It has a kind of like specific thing that it's really good at, but it's not a panacea. It's not good at everything. And there just are fundamentally other ways to compress transactional data and batch transactions together and then settle them to Bitcoin. So that's really energized the builder space. Lots of, lots of startups doing that now. And it's also drawing non-Bitcoin investors back into Bitcoin, which is uh, really interesting. Like I'm seeing generalist firms that may have never looked to Bitcoin ever, never done a Bitcoin deal, are now looking at Bitcoin startups with a fresh set of eyes. So some people think that's a bad thing, but uh, I don't see it that way, you know? That sounds really good for Bitcoin. I think so. I think it's changing the culture. It's changing the composition of builders. It's re-energizing it. It's, you know, some of the old guard are cycling out, but there's a lot of new folks coming in. And uh, I think that can have a really, really immediate and material impact on the actual development culture of Bitcoin, which has been pretty static in the last few years. Yeah, and I'm glad that we're talking about this. I specifically wanted to talk about development culture on Bitcoin because with other, you know, the other big blockchains, part of the narrative that supports the chain is, you know, best developer communities, one of the best developer communities. And really the narrative surrounding Bitcoin has kind of been in the other direction when it comes to that, but it was dismissed as, you know, it doesn't matter, Bitcoin's good the way it is. You know, is it of like paramount importance that Bitcoin's developer ecosystem, you know, strengthen? Like, is that, you know, absolutely necessary for Bitcoin's long-term success? Is that something that, you know, you think is really, really important, Nick, or, or not that important? Well, you know, there's, I think, probably a middle ground. A lot of these other protocols stress, like, the number of developers or, like, number of GitHub commits, and they overly index on those metrics. And I think, um, you know, there's a deal, there's a certain degree of abuse of the data there. But, um, and, and I think it's this obsession with, like, the Silicon Valley move fast and break things mode of building startups, which of course doesn't apply to a monetary system. However, you also need to cultivate a transactional economy. Like we're talking about finance here and um, it's clear that Bitcoin, if it, you know, if there's nothing to do with the Bitcoin, then Bitcoin, the protocol itself suffers, right? Bitcoin, think of it like a business, like it needs to earn revenue. Revenue comes in the form of fees from people that want to compete to get into blocks and make transactions. And, you know, regardless of what you think about the security model or not, it's clearly good to have more revenue and more fees, right? That is obviously good. Um, if you want Bitcoin block space to be empty and pristine, that's fine, but that will cause the death of Bitcoin over the long term. So that's where the developers come in, I think, is finding interesting ways to 
allow people to engage in transactions uh, that you know are suitable for them. And I don't think it's controversial to say that Bitcoin is limited in what it can do at the base layer with the Bitcoin script. And so I think there's plenty of like you know white space there. There's plenty of things that can be built, and that Bitcoiners need and want. And uh, we've been limited so far by this view that it has to all be done on Lightning or has to all be done on main chain. I think there's other ways, more creative ways to, you know, build structures that people find interesting and like to use. Uh, you just have to listen to, to the users, right? So you can't take this purely engineering focused mindset. Uh, you have to listen to the users and actually see what has product market fit, maybe even elsewhere in the crypto space. And, uh, you know, for the first time in a long time, I'm pretty optimistic about uh, the emergence of this developer community on Bitcoin, not just the protocol, like protocol dev should be pretty slow and incremental and, um, you know, risk averse, but it's not just protocol dev, it's, it's, it's many other layers. And so that's where I'm, I'm really excited to see like the new enthusiasm come in. Love to hear it. Trevor, you have a question for Nick. And in a few minutes, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to start letting some audience members on stage to ask Nick a couple questions. So if you are interested in speaking with Nick and you're not a psychopath, please request to come on stage. Trevor, please go ahead. Yeah, Nick, are there specific use cases that you're kind of curious about given the uh, what we're seeing with ordinals and the, the use of the blob space? Um, are there specific low-hanging fruits that you think the builders out there should be looking into or use cases that you think um, have maybe proven demand or interesting ways to use uh, Bitcoin L1 today that should be explored? Yeah, I mean, I am interested in seeing uh, the notion of vaults emerge, uh, new custodial setups that are more flexible and safer in many ways. I think the Ethereum people are onto something with their account abstraction uh, basically turning custody, uh, moving it away from the default model where you write down your 12 words or whatever, uh, and just adding flexibility to custodial setups. I think that's really, really important. Um, and I think that there's a lot to be done there. Um, I would like to see ZK rollups on Bitcoin. I think that is the like preferred way to do an L2, uh, at least that style of L2. I think that probably does require a new BIP. Um, so we'll see if that's uh, politically tractable. And uh, then I think another immediate need is a better way to wrap Bitcoin and insert it on other transactional spaces because I'm not concerned about where the Bitcoin settles. I don't think it has to strictly be on the Bitcoin network. There's a lot of people that want to use Bitcoin but are limited in doing so because there's no safe ways to transport it to other uh, other transactional networks. And, uh, you know, I don't think there's any, like, moral wrong in settling a Bitcoin on a Solana or an Avalanche or an ETH. The same way I don't think there's any harm done by settling a claim for a Bitcoin on Coinbase's backend, you know, on their database. I consider those all to be the same thing. Um, so I'd like to see more work around that. Um, I think there's there's a ton ton to do here, um, but yeah, really really exciting time in the big building a, on Bitcoin space. Extremely exciting, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I've let Tazos Sideropoulos on stage. It says that Tazos is an associate professor at UIC. He's a PhD from MIT. He's in algorithms, uh, computational geometry, and theoretical computer science. This guy's a bonehead. Just kidding, Tazos. What's your question for Nick? <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, quick question. So maybe there is something I don't understand about ordinals, but as far as I understand, Bitcoin. If Bitcoin is to succeed, uh, the transaction fee has to go to the thousands of dollars per, per transaction, right? So does this mean that eventually ordinals will be unsustainable? Um, yeah, interesting question. I mean, I wouldn't impose the success condition for Bitcoin in the thousands of dollars per transaction range. Um, but I mean, generally, like, I, I'll accept the premise that like, we need to increase the economic density of transactions. So whether that means having one transaction that settles a ton of lightning payments or one transaction that's the anchor transaction for a roll-up, 
which is accounting for thousands of transactions. So I basically expect that to happen. Like I do expect transaction fees will rise, but that doesn't mean that individual Bitcoin payments get prohibitively expensive. Um, right now it's like a kind of an anomaly period because fees are still really low. Um, and to answer your question, um, it's simply the case that block space consumers will have to compete with each other. And so if fees rise for purely monetary transactions, then that will, to a certain degree, compete with um, like ordinals or inscriptions. And then that'll just mean that inscriptions will have to stop being frivolous and then they'll have to be economically significant. Um, so I don't think there's any one kind of transaction type, whether it's like a settlement for an L2 or an ordinary payment with Bitcoin or the insertion of arbitrary data that like Bitcoin, like quote unquote needs to optimize for. It's just that the transactors that are the most highly motivated are going to be the ones that are able to win the auction for the block space. But um, I think there's a heterogeneous like set of use cases there. And uh, so, so yeah, like if Bitcoin transaction fees rise a lot, that does price out, price out a lot of the ordinals activity, but I think there's always going to be people that want to engage in, in those types of transactions. As we saw with like NFTs on Ethereum, like fees were pretty high and people are still doing NFTs. So I, I think it's, it can just support like a variety of use cases, even if fees get driven up a lot. Love the response, Nick. And I have a follow-on question to that. You know, discussion of fees in the future of Bitcoin comes up a lot, and rightfully so, I think it should. To you, what time frame, you know, how long from now do we think that that's really going to have to come to a head? I've heard you talk about, you know, Bitcoin after 20 years, if it hasn't succeeded as a settlement network, that's a problem. What, what time frame are you looking for some of this stuff to really kind of come to a head over? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we have that long. Uh, a lot of people like to um trot out the canard of like 2140 oh like oh that's when the block rewards won the end but that's that's silly like the block bitcoin subsidy element ends in a pretty real sense much sooner than that you know you obviously want to keep security spend at a pretty decent level i don't know what it is today like maybe five to ten billion dollars a year on security spend the halving is what next year then there's another halving four years from now so like these are material concerns in the intermediate term. Um, and uh, so I'd like to see fees stabilize at a higher level structurally, like within the next 10 years, you know? Um, and I would be concerned if we're down to one sat per byte again within two halvings. So I think that would be concerning. Um, but, you know, overall, I'm pretty optimistic about the premium nature of Bitcoin's block space. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I'm not a doomer about it, but I can also acknowledge that um, fees will, will have to rise. Right now, like they're maybe five to one to 5% of minor revenue. I think that is going to have to change and hopefully over the next four years and at least in the next halving regime. We'll have to see how things evolve. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I brought Scott Johnson on stage. Scott, it says that you're a GP at VB Capital. You're a finance lawyer too. Nothing you say is legal advice. Scott, what's your question for Nick? <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Um, I'd like to get your views on political landscape. I don't think it's a coincidence necessarily that you know all the all the actions of Choke Point 2.0 occurred after the 2022 election, and it. In fact, the first kind of regulatory salvo was on the day that Congress changed hands. Um, and, you know, given the fact that, you know, essentially the House was decided by five seats and within those five seats, you're talking 7,000 votes. So, you know, effectively 3,500 Republican votes was the delta between deciding Congress and effectively a trifecta control. And, you know, contrast with, you know, 40 million potential crypto users in the, in the U.S., you know, what what can we do better in, in terms of flexing, you know, political muscles when when you're looking at, you know, for the foreseeable future of tight races in the House and, and at the federal level where, you know, essential, you know, control of Congress and, you know, deadlock or not is decided by so few and we're 
you know, essentially a very powerful constituency, just maybe not particularly well organized? Yeah, great question. Um, I hesitate to characterize like the whole crypto, the set of people that hold crypto is like single issue voters because yeah. it's obviously a very heterogeneous group. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we could do a lot more, a lot more. Um, I mean, it's interesting how much you can accomplish by just talking to people or writing things down. So like the, for instance, the choke point article that I wrote, um, that catalyzed several members of Congress into um, asking those, those hard questions of our federal regulators. So Senators Haggerty and Tillis wrote a letter to the Fed and the FDIC and asked them about it. Specifically, I'm not going to take all the credit for it. I think they may have figured it out independently. It wasn't that hard to see. Um, there was a hearing in the House Financial Services Committee about basically choke point 2.0. So little things you do, like writing things or actually just literally talking, talking to congressional staff, which is what I spend some of my time doing, really helps um, informing them what crypto entrepreneurs and Bitcoiners actually care about, like that makes a huge difference. Um, and then broadcasting the, the campaigns, uh, I'll be doing a lot of this as we come into the end of the cycle here. What we do is inherently political for better or for worse. We don't really have a choice, right? Like just doing your normal job if you work in the crypto ecosystem is political because the political apparatus is largely against us. Um, so uh, broadcasting and supporting the campaigns of the explicitly pro-crypto people, I'll be doing a lot of that as we enter the, the next phase here. And then lastly, this is like kind of underappreciated, but building products that people actually like and value is probably the most important thing. <laughs> Don't talk crazy, you, Nick. Don't talk yeah, crazy. No. <laughs> that's how you actually build real political support. Like a lot of the hatred for crypto is because it's only been useful and relevant to like a pretty small sliver of the population um, as compared with like other mainstream technologies, which are just like broadly adopted. Like, I don't know, like Uber, for instance, everybody used Uber. So politically, it, it was very easy for Uber to like, I mean, this is the example everyone gives. It was very easy for Uber to win support in specific cities because it was very useful for everyone. Right now, we haven't achieved that level of penetration, I'd argue, where we've actually built things that are useful for, re for regular people. You know, it's, it's still like fairly niche, I would say. So that's like the most like politically important thing you could do <laughs> actually is uh, is build things that people like because then it, it just comes naturally. And then the, those people are the constituents of everyone in Congress. So that's, uh, the, that's, that's my advice on that. That's a hot take, Nick. My grandma's spinning up Bitcoin nodes every single day. Uh, <laughs> no, fantastic response, Nick. Uh, look, if, uh, if Scott, do you have any follow-up question for Nick? That was a great first question. Uh, no, no, that was that was a great answer. Thanks, Nick. Yeah. Hey, Nick, th this has been absolutely fantastic, man. Is there any closing thoughts, anything that you desperately want to get off your chest now that you're on, on the biggest show in the history of Bitcoin? No, just kidding, but would love to know if you have any closing thoughts. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm struck by the contrast between the price action, which I think is largely reflective of the, the new Fed stance, and the difficulty that I'm seeing on the ground with banks. Um, it affects everyone, and I encourage Bitcoiners. I know Bitcoiners like to see themselves as distinct from the crypto industry. Unfortunately, they are not. It's all, it's not, we don't all have the same objectives, but we are affected by the broader crypto space. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of Bitcoiners ask me like, hey, well, this bank stuff doesn't affect me, you know, like I just hold, I stack my sats and whatever, but like, it does affect the places where you are stacking your sats at, <laughs> you know, like ultimately these exchanges do need fiat connectivity and uh, there's banks that power that. And if those banks unbank the exchange, then life's going to get really, really difficult. So it doesn't help to be like naive or utopian about it uh, for better, or for worse. Um, you know, the industry is treated similarly you know, it's treated as a kind of aggregate homogenous mass. And 
I don't think the sovereign, like as much as I am sympathetic to like the sovereign individual type thing, you know, most people are not going to leave the U.S. if the U.S. turns hostile. So the exit possibility is minimal. We do thankfully have the rule of law here. We have some pretty accommodating members of Congress. The tools exist. And we have the states. You know, the states are passing crypto-focused or Bitcoin-focused legislation. Like, look at what Texas is doing. It's actually happening all over the place right now. The states are also a very powerful tool in pushing back against federal overreach. So our toolkit is pretty broad. And it's not hopeless. But it's definitely, we're in the most aggressive time of federal crackdown against the crypto space that has ever been. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, don't lose hope, but also don't be naive about it because they will use these tools against us and they've been more aggressive than I ever expected, especially with the decapitation of Silvergate and Signature. Um, so yeah, I guess it's kind of a mixed message, but, um, I'm pretty optimistic on the one hand, but on the other, there's so much work to do uh, to just fight for the right to engage in commerce, you know, for the right to like start a business. And uh, I was thinking about this yesterday, like, what if I was in an industry where the government didn't literally hate me? Like, how nice would that be? Uh, but uh, unfortunately, this is the one we're in and this is the fight that we have. We didn't, maybe we did choose it, maybe we didn't choose it, but this is the fight that we're in. Um, and so what happens the next couple of months here is really critical. Uh, but I think everyone can make a difference, whether it's like polit political engagement, just writing things down and making people aware of it, or, uh, or building things that matter. So I, everyone has a role to play. Very wise words, Nick. Nick, this was so much fun, man. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. This is great. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, this was the first episode of the Bitcoin show. What a kick ass way to start with Nick Carter, the host of the On the Brink podcast, general partner at venture firm Castle Island Ventures. And as I mentioned before, hated by most Bitcoiners, uh, but I have no idea why, given uh, the takes that we heard from Nick today. Wonderful perspective. Big shout out to Trevor. Big shout out to Patrick for co hosting the show with me. We're going to be back next week. This is an every Tuesday thing. You're not going to be able to get rid of us. We'll be back next Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for another show with another kick-ass guest. Make sure you follow Nick. Check out all the stuff that he's doing. Check out the great businesses he's investing in. And this show is also going to be available on Apple and Spotify podcasts. This is the first episode, so next week we'll actually have links to post at the top so you can share the podcast with people uh, that you know that are normal people that don't spend all day on Twitter. But thanks so much for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time. <laughs>